0: Hi, thanks for coming. Welcome. My name is Josh. This is Dharma Punks, New York. I've been the Buddhist pastor, giving the talks for the last 16 years, going on 17. Good time to give a talk on capitalism, stress, and self-soothing. As I was in the supermarket today, And already they're playing Christmas music. It's a horror show. And on top of that, uh, when I wasn't looking, somehow Black Friday, which is a catastrophe in and of itself, has somehow metastasized into Cyber Monday. Pretty soon every day will be a shopping day throughout the year with Christmas music being blasted everywhere we go with that rather cynical introduction before we dive into tonight's talk reminding you if you would like to support my work as a buddhist pastor everything i do is by donation so the venmo is dharma punks with an xnyc and the paypal button is on the podcast site which is dharma punks with an xnyc dot podbean.com then that's it that's our pitch that's our spiel and now settle in find a comfortable chair uh put on your seat belts. here we go just as my kind of it seems weekly uh, reminder our nervous systems have three basic uh, overall settings There's the very ancient uh, immobilization freeze states, which is governed by the brain stem. That's when we're in a state of shock or shutdown. And then there's the more recent sympathetic nervous system, which is when we're uh, fidgety, anxious, on guard, a uh, feel we have to act to survive, a mobilization state. That's when our heartbeats are racing. When it stops digestion, it releases cortisol. And uh, that's when we have very, very repetitive survival-based thoughts. And the third setting, by far the healthiest, the one you want to spend as much of uh, your life, not all of your life, you do need to get exercise and be in the sympathetic and also sleep when you're in the ancient shutdown. But uh, homeostasis, when we're uh, in, we both have uh, a nice balance between Uh, mobilize and immobilize, where we can relax, listen, we can be patient, we don't have to act, we can uh, engage in uh, broadening and building skill development, which means we can learn how to uh, develop new behaviors, we can digest, and the body restores itself. And when we're in meditation or in spiritual practice, we are very much in that homeostatic highest level of um, being. So to to stay in this homeostatic rest and digest, fully relaxed uh, state where the body and the mind are the healthiest, where we uh, don't suffer any of the damages of chronic stress, We need, of course, to have uh, friendly individuals in our life that can regulate our emotions. We need to be in environments that are not uh, hopefully filled with constant uh, threats to our survival. But as uh, the great behavioral psychologist, Robert Sapolsky and so many other Important clinical psychologists, especially positive psychologists like Seligman and Haidt and so many others, say there's certain basic states of mind or relationships with the world that help us stay in a very um, healthy state of well-being. Uh, five basic ones I'll cover. Um If you're in an environment where the stressors are predictable, where there's a pattern of events where you're not being caught off guard by sudden significant changes in your environment, predictability reduces anxiety and stress. So for example, if you have uh, two individuals who are hooked up to machines that shock, give them very mild shock. The one that is hooked up to a machine that gives shocks during irregular uh, patterns where there's no predictability, their cortisol levels, their stress levels, their anxiety levels will be much higher than someone who is hooked up to a machine that gives them a shock every seven minutes. Because they can prepare. They know that for the six and, that, and six minutes and 50 seconds be, between, they know that they're not going to be shocked. So they can relax and regulate, breathe, and they can do all this stuff. They don't have to constantly be on guard. So a sense of predictability is really essential to restore our nervous systems back to high functioning and to reduce anxiety. Okay, that's the first, predictability. The second is a sense of control or agency in our environments. For example, if you have, um, say, two rats in uh, two different cages, and they're given very mild shocks, and in one cage, there is a lever, and for a little while, the lever, pushing the lever, puts off the shock then even if the lever stops working, that rat will have less stress and anxiety than a rat in a cage without any lever where there's never been a sense of control. So having even the illusion of control of our environments makes us uh, be less on guard, less hypervigilant, less tense, all the time, but when we're in environments where we have no sense of control, no agency, no meaningful input to the stimuli around us, we can be constantly um, more vulnerable, let's say. And this is shown in so many different clinical studies. The third is secure tribal status. As primates, we are very, very, very attuned to how uh, where, what our tribal status is. So if you look at our evolutionary cousins, baboons on the Serengeti, baboons are interesting. They only have to work for three hours a day for their nutrients. So they have pretty stress-free lives. Other predators, the lions, leopards and jackals, leave them alone. They're not uh, prey for them, and they fare pretty well in uh, engagements with other predators. So they're not hunted. So baboons have, as it goes, a pretty easy life, generally in the Serengeti, at least in areas that are set aside for them. But still, the low-status members of baboon troops have a massive amount of stress, as opposed to the baboons at the top of the social hierarchy who have far, far less um, uh, blood uh, cortisol. And um, also the one the low status members live much shorter than the high status members. And we see that, of course, across the globe in different human uh, uh, settings, where uh, anthropologists um, have shown, David Graeber's work has shown that uh, the lower the status, generally the more stress in individuals. Not all the time, we'll talk about that in a little while. Uh, So that's important, tribal status. And then discharge, the ability if a stress happens to uh, do something to process, to discharge the energy, the tension in the body, that's really, really important. Um, so for example, if you have let's go back again to two rats in two different cages, and one rat after getting a shock has a treadmill, and they can run on the treadmill, another rat has no treadmill to run on, The one that gets to run on the treadmill after getting a mild shock will very quickly restore itself back to normal functioning, whereas the uh, rat that doesn't have a treadmill will not. And we see with human beings, after stressful, even traumatic events, those people who simply rest in the aftermath, um, they're blood their sorry um, heart rate goes down cortisol levels go down uh, hypervigilance goes down markers of anxiety goes down while they're resting but then once they go back into life their heart rate starts soaring again so the relief of simply resting is very, very tenuous, in fact, not long-lasting, whereas individuals who not only rest, but do something to physically metabolize all of the muscle tension and the action potential that's built up in regions of the brain by acting, uh, those individuals can significantly lower the following or ensuing stress that follows negative events. So being able to discharge a stressful event is really important. And finally, uh, being able to put aside the stressful stories in our life and move on, refocus our attention um, is really, really, really key as well to not having ourselves live too long in chronic stress. So, After a really painful, difficult situation, um, the chemical secretions associated with a, a negative event, such as adrenaline, norepinephrine, they roughly, the first releases last about 90 seconds. And even the cortisol jolts are not that significantly long. Uh, they, what they these secretions do is mobilize energy in the muscles, muscles increase blood pressure. They turn off digestion and they get us ready to flee or fight, etc. If anything emotional lasts longer than, um, uh, let's say, ten minutes, it's not the actual event; it's the fact that we are replaying the event and thus re-stimulating the amygdala and the HPA axis, which is then once again releasing more and more stress hormones. So in other words, the actual physiological response to stress in and of itself is pretty brief, but what keeps ourselves in chronic stress is very often after disappointing events is essentially that we keep repeating the events, the stories, the experiences in our mind. We revisualize the difficult conversations, the disappointing encounters, the frustrating um, uh, interactions. we replay them in our mind and in replaying them, we retrigger again and again and again the stress response. So being able to put aside, And refocus is very, very important to um, not staying in chronic hypervigilance and stress. So let's go over these. We need a sense of predictability that the stressors don't happen randomly, that there's a pattern in life. We need a sense of control over our environments. We need to feel pretty secure In our tribal status, not at the very bottom of the lower of the lowest rung. We need to be able to discharge the tension in the body after stressful events. Mm -hmm. And also we need to put stressful events after we talk about them. We need to be able to refocus our attention elsewhere rather than carry around the stressors of the day with us. So that's the key to staying calm in life. Well. Even in pandemic-free times, a globalized late capital economy creates ongoing potential for stressors without any predictable pattern whatsoever. There's always the possibility in uh, a globalized economy for sudden job losses, the disruption of entire industries by new technology, volatile cycles of growth and retraction, And to add on top of that, late capitalism features what's called a gig economy, which is essentially jobs for where people who don't have great wealth do service industry jobs for people who have wealth. And gig economy jobs are generally benefit-free without any security, so for any reason, that has to do with profit profit incentives and trying to maximize uh, cost efficiencies in a company. People can be let go of without any warning and very often without anything to rely on. Uh, In our late capital, uh, especially American economy, there are very, very few and far between social safety nets, such as we don't have... um, Uh, national health, nor do we have uh, very good unemployment benefits and so forth. And those who qualify very often only get minimal amounts for a a short duration Uh, in other more democratic socialist countries, there are far, far better job security. And if you do lose your job, you'll have benefits for far longer, and you won't have to worry about paying your health care bills. So huge difference between uh, late stage capitalism, especially in America, and democratic socialist countries. Um, But these are not Um, uh, normal times. These are very difficult times, Uh, times where there are mutating COVID variants popping up um, at random intervals. There are extreme weather events due to global warming, wildfires that are horrific and are beyond anything that firefighters have ever experienced on the West Coast, flooding, drought, heat waves. And then if that wasn't quite enough, we have, due to uh, uh, so many many factors, we have the rise of the racist right and polarizing fragmentation of populations that are driven by extremely right-wing media and geopolitical tensions. And so All this means that none of us have any very little control, and there's very little sense of predictability in our environments. So, two of the main factors that keep us from being in chronic stress and hypervigilance are obliterated pretty much by during late stage capitalism, especially during. Uh, a global event like a pandemic and during times of um, global warming. But it gets worse, (laughs) don't worry about that. Um, Capitalism's vast wealth inequality has made it inescapably visible to us all the time, the disparity of wealth, in our country we are bombarded on social media feeds and on the images of mass media unrelenting images that show people with great wealth or are living extremely uh, glamorous uh, carefree lives and the this bombardment this barrage of images uh can reinforce the sense that other people are doing life better. Other people uh, have figured it out and that we haven't. It's called compare and despair. The problem is with left hemisphere brains and ventromedial circuits in our brains, it's very, 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 very difficult for us not to look at these images and feel this sense of I'm doing something wrong. Of course, nobody posts images of themselves on a, you know, a boring Tuesday afternoon where they feel a sense of languishing. People only push on the internet images of themselves and their absolute best. So even our friends are posting images of themselves that look like they're doing life better. And so, our sense of tribal status, our perceived socioeconomic and social status suffers significantly. Uh, Poor individuals in the United States, by the way, have far more money than poor individuals in Bhutan. Yet in our country, um, the vast economic inequality make chronic stress and all the attendant symptoms thereof including the fact that one out of every three members of our population right now meets the criteria for an anxiety disorder whereas in Bhutan that level is generally around five percent. So it's the disparity of wealth Where in Bhutan, where most everyone that you'll ever encounter is poor and there's not this bombardment of social media images, the level of stress is far lower. So not only due to uh, the status quo, do we have no sense of predictability, very little control over our environment, but we also all are susceptible to the possibility of feeling uh, vulnerable in our social tribal status. Um, Now let's look at the ability to metabolize or discharge stress. That was the fourth main factor. Well, it turns out that capitalism, from its very inception, not only produced stress by pumping up Uh, logarithmically, the amount of hours workers were expected to work. But capital economies from the 17th century onward, from their inception, grew primarily by importing mood-altering substances from Africa, China, India, the Middle East, the Americas. From the very inception of capitalism, the economies uh rested largely upon the importation of coffee, sugar, tobacco, alcohol, opium, chocolate, etc. So in case you're not making the connection, capitalism ex- uh, exacerbated stress. and at the same moment, it delivered these um, uh, substances, which hijacked our dopaminergic reward systems and essentially pushed us all into dealing with stress by essentially narcotizing ourselves or uh, numbing ourselves or uh, changing our moods entirely chemically rather than by discharging stress by talking about it with others community bonding, um, movement, and so forth. So what started happening was people would work longer and longer hours and then they would go to the bar uh, and start drinking rum from the West Indies or they'd start smoking tobacco, consuming sugar, and so forth. Um, And on top of it, Uh, Now, uh, late capitalism has brought to us uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, dating apps, gaming devices, Amazon, day trading, all of which on top of the substances hijack our dopamine pathways. And so we're given countless ways of, when we're stressed out, rather than discharging the stress we generally tend to numb ourselves or produce different states of excitation so that we're not aware of how much stress we're experiencing at any given moment. Today, it's impossible, utterly impossible, to draw a line between recreational drug use versus self-medicating chronic stress because there is no line between the two, between recreational drug use and people who are self-medicating their chronic stress. Addictions are how people manage the pressures of late-stage capitalism, the hyper-arousal, and the dissociation that sets in as a, re- as a, r- a result of the unpredictability of our environments, the vulnerabilities of our work, the vulnerabilities of our lack of benefits, and the vast amounts of images bombarding us, telling us we're doing our lives wrong. In the United States, we have about 4.6% of the world's population. We consume 80% of the global opioid supply, and about of all the world's illegal drugs. So that's 4% of the world's population uh, consuming two-thirds of the world's illegal drugs and 80% of the opioids. And so the inescapable conclusion is that capitalism creates stress and then capitalism delivers uh, the means that we try to self-medicate ourselves rather than doing the meaningful ways of addressing our stress. So as horrific as this condemnation of the way things are, uh, I hope have amounted, it should be noted that the times that the Buddha lived in were not easier because there were warlords, countless invasions. There were completely dysregulated marketplaces, greedy uh, merchants. It was a environment that was in its own way, just as hellish um, and just as unpredictable. And people had just as little control, just as little, Um, sense of, um, uh, you know, very, very few people had any caste um, uh, status, Uh, most were in the lowest castes. And so the Buddha in two meaningful suttas addressed uh, the effect of stressors in the environment. He said, There came a time in my life where I experienced a great dismay. Everywhere I looked, people were arguing, and I believe the phrase he used was floundering like fish in small puddles competing with each other. The way people acted was frightening. The world was entirely without substance or morals. I wanted to find peace, but I saw there was no place in the world that was safe, all was conflict. And then he said, that was this uh, Atadanda Sutta, and then in the Loka, the World Sutta, he said, if you look around you, people are prisoners of their addictions, always trying to attain better states of beings through their addictions, and the result is nothing but stress. So, The Buddhist solution to living in extremely unpredictable, unreliable, stressful times during vast wealth inequalities was to start a monastic community where all the key factors of agency, predictability, tribal quality were met, where there was constant communal decision-making, everyone had a voice, The the environments were nonviolent, the resources were shared, Um, all people from all classes were treated equally, so there was no uh, status anxiety. And interestingly enough, the system was very similar to the socioeconomic institutions of the Iroquois nations, of Native Americans before the European colonizers came. Um, The Iroquois nations had longhouses where all of the goods were stored and stockpiled and allocated by women's councils. No one owned land. No one had higher social status, uh, consensus, decision-making. So it's not like the Buddha's... um, monasteries were unique. We see this alternative model throughout history and as an alternative way of social organization. Okay, great. We could all stop and apply to live in monasteries and wear robes and walk around with alms bowls, but most of us will not do that. So, uh, what of those of us who do have to live in the world, who do have to pay rent, who do have to engage with others? Well, the Buddha and the Dharma say that there's it's important to keep in our awareness the two different states of being. And for the Buddha noted that We have to balance what he called Lokia, the worldly mundane life, where we go to, where we uphold an identity, where we have certain skills, where we have a list of accomplishments, where we're, we're aware of what separates us from others, where we have financial obligations, where we might have uh, lots of plans for the future, and This is the state where we are most likely to be hypervigilant, stressed, anxious, and even at times where we can engage socially and be in a higher state of homeostasis. In our worldly life, there's always the possibility that some obligation, unmet responsibility or some drama, will capture our attention and pull us back into stress but the other state of being the buddha noted is the lokatura to carve out time for our spiritual practice that transcends the mundane life and pulls us entirely out of the sense of being part of an economic social system that is unjust, that creates a sense of predictability, a sense of control, a sense of being able to, at times, discharge stress, and an ability, most and most importantly, to be able to put aside the stresses of the day and refocus, so that we don't keep re-triggering, reactivating stresses that stem from earlier events. And for the Buddha, it was important, he told uh, household practitioners to set aside a time each day where we would have this transition from the worldly to the transmundane, the higher states of being where we would no longer be in any way preoccupied with our status, our uh, responsibilities, our obligations, our, um, uh, and replaying in our minds the stressful events of life. And the way we make this transition is through having some form of daily ritual that demarcates the end of putting out fires being on top of it, being responsible, keeping up with all the things we need to know about, where we literally pull ourselves out of all of the news cycles, all of the social engagements, and we attain a relaxed state of restoration and self-soothing. This is what really profoundly regulates our autonomic nervous system Having It provides us a predictable rhythm, a sense of agency and control, and it allows us to refocus, put aside the stressors, and shift into a state where we are no longer, at that moment, subject to the vagaries of the late capital landscape in which we find ourselves located. So these transition rituals can involve meditation at a certain time. And that's what I do. The moment I have my last uh, counseling meeting of the day on days that I don't teach, I meditate. I stop and I put aside all of the events, the interactions, everything that happened before it. And I go into a place for 25 minutes where I am utterly detached from all stimuli from the world around me, where I'm telling my body, I'm telling my mind that it's no longer the time to be in any way subject, reliant upon or conditioned by the world around me. Now, it doesn't have to be meditation. Uh, People who do engagements with nature light up the right hemisphere, which is the part of the mind that is activated when we're no longer in the, you know, the, the fully engaged time of having to put out fires, keeping track of the dramas. And nature walks stimulate the The right amygdala and pull it away from searching stimuli for threats and for uh, things to be anxious about. Yoga, mindful movements, being fully present as we do daily life events that can be soothing, whether it's doing the dishes, you know, folding the laundry, or cooking or gardening, if we really, really focus attention and immerse ourselves in the activity, we go into a task positive state that disconnects us and refocuses attention and stops the cycle of re-triggering the HPA access and discharging the stress hormones again and again and again. Breath work can do it, chanting can do it, Um, playing music can do it. These practices produce what's called states of awe sometimes. And awe is the only affect where that um, is positively activating the amygdala. The amygdala, while mostly associated with stress response, hypervigilance, Uh, secretion of adrenaline and then cortisol. But when we do something immersive, where we become fully, completely focused, and completely uh, engaged with one event, and we imbue it with a sense of novelty, a sense of, I've never really paid attention to this before. It activates a salience, uh, emotional response to stimuli that can literally lift us out of the ongoing state of chronic stress or vulnerability that we might feel in our lives. As the social psychologist Paul Piff at UC Irvine said, it dissolves self-fixation and concern about how we relate to other people, it diminishes the verbal representations of self. So we stop telling the story of our lives over and over again. The easiest way to have a ritual that allows us to attain a transcendent daily practice is through concentration practices, whether focusing on the breath Focusing on present sensations like body uh, feelings arising and passing, sounds happening in the environment, all of that when we keep our attention focused on one thing, actually re- secretes trace amounts of dopamine in the frontal cortex, and that dopamine regulates glutamates, so we're not too excited. But it also reg- it also leads to an upregulation of GABA, which relaxes us. So we can enter in concentration practices what's called flow states, the same kind of flow states when we're fully immersed in a task-positive activity. So this is an important consideration. If we want to rise above the conditions of a stressful world, focusing attention on one thing diligently Using that as a way to put aside um, the previous events, using that as a sense of control and predictability, using that as a way to discharge stress, all of it can be done in the same transitional ritual. If all we do is meditate, then we would be definitely open to being criticized for inaction or escapism. Buddhist practice is not escapist. Most Buddhists are socially engaged individuals, and that gives them a sense of agency in the world, even though very often there's very, very little positive results that are visible. It was my Buddhist practice that allowed me to not fall into a despondent fatalism, that all endeavors were not ultimately making a huge dent in the vast amount of suffering and inequality and uh, essentially the flood of bad news that was happening, mean that if all we do is that and we don't have some transcendent practice that allows us to rise above focusing on all of the unending barrage of just insanity, if we don't have some practice that allows us to stop telling the story of how shit the world is, then we burn out. These practices are not meant to be in place of engaged social Buddhist practice. The practices are meant to be as a way so that we can also be engaged. We can do some kind of take meaningful actions to address the challenges of our times, whether climate change, the rise of the racist right, racism in general, systemic racism, and so on and so forth. Another way that the Buddha offered as doing this transitional ritual from the lokiya, the worldly, to the transcendent realm, the lokatura, is what he called daily recollections. Now there are 10 of them and there's far too little time to go into all 10, but I will say that some of the key recollections are all image-based and you visualize times of your own generosity, your own virtuous acts, or places where you've known great peace, that's Santi Nusati, reflecting on your generosity, Kaga Nusati. But in many ways, I find the most uh, profound is recollection of the Buddha, Buddha Nusati, Human beings, all human beings thrive and feel most secure and most safe when we feel attached in some way to a safe, caring, soothing being that we can return to when we feel overwhelmed or stressed. And it turns out in childhood and the human mind have a secure base even when that figure isn't actually available. It can be done through images. So children keep an image of, hopefully, if they have a secure base of their parents in mind as a sense, an embodied sense, uh, felt sense that stems from the image that there's safety in the world. And the role of reflecting on the Buddha, the fact that not just one historical figure, but that many countless Buddhas have existed. They can be anyone you want, from Maya Angelou to uh, Nelson Mandela or Malcolm X or whoever you want it to be. I don't care. You just have a figure that you hold in mind and it activates a secure base. So that was a lot. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to put in practice these transition rituals that allow us to rise above the stressors of our daily life in our meditation practice. So what I would encourage you to do is find a really comfortable seated position where you can uh, incline yourself to be both relaxed and present. And now we're gonna transition from the information heavy part of the evening to the practice part where very little to keep track of other than your own internal state. And the rest will be just relaxing into transcendence. So find the most comfortable state where you can, if you want, I like to roll my shoulders, pull them back, and then drop them to open up my chest. Take a nice deep breath and long exhalation to begin toning the vagus nerve, bring awareness to the belly and just allow the belly to distend and try to receive the breath energy in the belly, not in the chest. So if you can feel your belly inflate with the inhalation and then deflate, with the exhalation. Try to encourage the eyes to settle. If the eyes are bouncing about behind closed eyelids, then it's very hard to fully relax into the present. So just send a humble request to the eyes to just heavily sink into the warm eye sockets as if they're pools of warm water that the eyes can float in and be like you're floating in a warm swimming pool. No place to go, nothing to do, nothing to keep track of. And try to keep the rhythm of the breath really relaxed. The slower the rate of inhalation and exhalation in and of itself down-regulates, the autonomic nervous system allows us to attain the state of restoring ourselves into the rest and digest, reacting, not responding, present state that we're looking for. Again, if you can, try to breathe into your belly. So it feels like with your in breath, the belly expands without any tension. And then is the long exhalation that's not pushed out, just released. The belly subsides like a balloon releasing air. And just see if we can be at peace with the way we feel right now. any thoughts from anything that happened previously in the day or previously in recent experience or events in the world outside. When they come up, just note them, let them be there in the background, but just bring your attention back home. And if you want, also... Allow your mind to rest on the sounds that are happening in your environment. Without picturing what creates the sounds, just allow the sounds to be there, or if you prefer, just find pleasant sensations in your body. Maybe in the palm of your hands or in the buttocks, and the thighs. And just, each time just practice that transition from the Lokia, the worldly to lokatura, the transcendent. Each time your mind gets pulled away by the worldly, by things that are not actually happening right now, just use the breath or sounds or body sensations to open you up to an expansive present where in this moment, nothing is happening. A moment of freedom that opens up in the midst of a, difficult, challenging, often overwhelming world. And so we'll sit here in silence for a while, just practicing. So if you like, keep practicing focusing your attention on that which is unconditionally available, that requires no effort, no stress, that requires no... being constantly on guard, a practice that just allows you to completely release the tensions of your body that have accumulated. Or if you want, you can move on to a skillful recollection Bringing to mind an image of a time and a place in your life that felt like it stood outside of the world, where you felt a great unconditional peacefulness, perhaps a state of awe, seeing a something vast and natural that consumed all of your senses. or if you like, a recollection of Buddha nature, an image that you conjure up of a being, a person or some kind of consciousness that is caring, soothing, attentive, unconditionally, interested, and available, an ideal figure that can create a sense that no matter what the world throws at us, there's a grounding, orienting perspective that helps us rise above that helps us find an alternative other than seeking addictive behaviors as a way to deal with the disappointments of life, the stresses of life, a figure that stands as an alternative whose life provides a kind of direction. See if you can feel this presence in you If you like, put a hand on your heart center or on the nape of your neck or on your forehead to warm up, stimulate the vagal nerve, create a sense of a secure attachment practicing, creating space in our life for a state of being that's unconditional, or at least less conditional, less subject to the unpredictabilities of the world around us, less subject to caring about what others think or interactions from the past a practice where we can fully land on a spacious open unconditioned present moment that's safe from all of the meaningless concerns of the world around us. So thanks for your practice. Thanks for listening.